Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. We're in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We're going to go down to verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word today. We pray, Lord, that it would go out in among the hearts of the people, Lord, and find fertile ground and uh, just let it produce fruit. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In the book, Deep Down Dark, Hector Tobar tells a story of 33 Chilean miners who were trapped 2,000 feet below the surface for 69 days. They had to live in the dark with almost no food and cut off from the rest of the world. They didn't know if they would ever see light again. Many of the miners, face to face with imminent death, took stock of their lives and realized that they all had a lot of regrets. Somebody asked Jose Henriquez, a Christian, if he would pray for everyone. As he got down on his knees, some of the other men joined him and he began to talk to God. He prayed, We aren't the best of men, Lord, but have pity on us. He actually got more specific. Victor Segovia knows that he drinks too much. Victor Zamora is too quick to anger. Pedro Cortez thinks about the poor father that he has been to his daughter. Nobody objected. It was the beginning of something special. In the deep down dark, buried underneath the earth, with death staring them in the face, the men got real before God and each other. They met every day to eat a meager meal, hear a short sermon, then they would get down on their knees to pray. God, forgive me for the violence of my voice before my wife and son. Or God, forgive me for abusing the temple of my body with drugs. They confessed to each other also. I'm sorry I raised my voice, or I'm sorry I didn't help get the water. Meanwhile, above the surface, a rescue effort had begun. People from all over the world began to help, give, or pray for the men to be saved. Unfortunately, the happiest part of the story is also the saddest. Eventually, a drill cuts a narrow hole through the rock. The miners get food supplies and iPads and they know that eventually they're going to be rescued not only that they find out that they're becoming famous and they might even get rich by telling their story it's at this point that the confessing stops the praying stops the lure of money and fame undoes a transformative community that had developed in their shared suffering That's strange, isn't it? They were at their best when life was at its worst. 
The deep down dark is a place where you know that you cannot make it on your own. The deep down dark is a place where you realize that you need God. Now God can use a dark mind to show us our need for God, but there is something much more powerful, and we're going to see that today during our study in the Gospel of John. Look at verse 17 with me. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We are told that the law was given through Moses. The question we should ask ourselves is, why was the law given? What was its purpose? I'd like to spend the first few minutes this morning trying to develop that. First, let me tell you what its purpose is not. The law was not given as a set of rules that by keeping them, we could somehow make ourselves acceptable to God. How do I know? Well, there are many reasons, but just let me give you one. In Acts chapter 15, certain men came down from Judea to Antioch. Upon arrival there, they started insisting that the Gentile converts, in order them to be saved, they would have to be circumcised and keep the Mosaic law. After Paul and Barnabas disputed with them, it was decided they would meet with the other apostles in Jerusalem and what has been called the Jerusalem Council to determine what action to take. We pick up the narrative in chapter 15, verse 6. It reads, Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our father nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Did you hear what Peter called the law? He called it a yoke that no one was able to bear. And do you know why we can't bear it? We can't bear it because the law demands absolute perfection if we are going to please God. Now you see, we can have the tendency to gauge ourselves by other people. That's why people say things like, well, I may not be perfect, but I'm a lot better than Hitler. Now, if you are young and you are physically attractive, people might tell you, you look good. But if you live long enough, you're going to hit a certain stage in life and people will add a little phrase to that. People will say, you look good, then they will add, for your age. What that means is, your body now has flab, wrinkles, liver spots, and varicose veins. You look good, but not in absolute terms, but in comparison to the other deteriorating, rotting, and flabby people who roam the earth. There comes a day when you step out of the shower and you're glad the mirror is fogged up. <laughs> Do you know why? Because the mirror gives us an accurate view of our appearance. 
The mirror is not defective. We are. Now let me speak to the men for a moment. When you wake up and look in the mirror and you see that you need to shave before you go to work, you don't tear the mirror off the wall and try to shave with it, do you? No, the mirror simply shows you the need for shaving. Do you know what that teaches us? The law is just a mirror, but we are shaved by grace. I apologize for that. The law was simply given to show us the dirt that is in our lives. Now imagine this morning I have a glass of water. If I held it up, it would look very refreshing. Now, if I put just a tablespoon of sand in it and stirred it up, if I showed it to you now, you would see the particles swirling around in it, and you wouldn't drink it. But if I let that glass set overnight, the next morning it would appear pristine again because all the dirt has settled to the bottom. It would now appear ready to drink. But now what if I take that spoon and once again stir it up? The spoon would stir up the particles and would show us that in actuality, the water was still just as dirty. That's what the law does. It's like that spoon. It stirs up the dirt that's been lying dormant in our lives and reveals to us who we really are and not just what we look like from the outside. As I've told you before, for a couple of years, I was the only white person in an all-black church. Now let me tell you, those people dress up for Sunday mornings. There's not a pair of sweatpants to be seen. Some of the ladies would come in with hats that could double as a fruit basket. <laughs> I mean, they all looked good. That said, my old black pastor Larry Sams used to tell me, Brother Scotty, Ain't nobody as holy as they look on Sunday morning. What am I getting at? We should all be thankful for God's grace because none of us are as good as what we want people to believe. But we have grown up in a society that applauds people who pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. And don't get me wrong, that is commendable in some areas, but not when it comes to the regards of salvation. When it comes to salvation, everyone needs a gift. When asked for the reason for his wealth, a multimillionaire is reported to have said, As a young man, when I was first married, I was dirt poor. Those were tough times. But being energetic, I took my last nickel and bought an apple. I spent the night polishing it, and it became so shiny that it was indeed a thing of beauty. The next day, I sold it on the street corner for a dime. I took the dime and bought two apples, which I again laboriously polished. The next day, I sold those two apples for 20 cents. I took the 20 cents and bought four apples, which I polished and sold for 40 cents. I took the 40 cents, bought eight apples, and went on this way until I reached a dollar and 60 cents. Then my father-in-law died and left us a million dollars. That's just like us. We try to say, I am rich in the things of God because of my fasting, my prayer, my devotion, my sacrifice, and my apple polishing. When in reality, we are rich only because Jesus died and opened the floodgates of grace to each one of us. 
And as you study John's gospel, you will find Jesus teaching the people that he is a fulfillment of all that was typified in the law. It was not enough to be born a Jew. They also had to be born from above. He deliberately performed two miracles on the Sabbath to teach them that he had a new rest to give them. In that Acts 15 passage I read, we heard Peter refer to the law as a yoke. We are not to be yoked by the law, but we are to be yoked to something much better. Or actually, it's not something, it's someone. Jesus told us this in Matthew 11:28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my burden is easy, and my load is light. When Moses came down from the mountain after receiving the Ten Commandments, he found the people completely unrestrained and engaging in idolatry. He had the Levites put on their swords. And Exodus 32:28 tells us that 3,000 men died. Contrast that to the upper room in Acts chapter 2. After the Holy Spirit came, Peter preached that first sermon, and Acts 2.41 tells us that instead of 3,000 people dying, 3,000 people were saved. That's very revealing, isn't it? When the law came down, 3,000 people died. When the Spirit came down, 3,000 people were saved. What does that tell us? Later on, the Apostle Paul would say, the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. Okay, in verse 17, we've talked about the law, but now let's talk about the last part of the verse. Jesus is not only full of grace, he is also full of truth. I think about the contrast between two famous sayings about the truth that we all have to weigh this morning. One of them is from a movie called A Few Good Men. There's a scene where Tom Cruise is examining Jack Nicholson on the stand. Tom Cruise says, I just want the truth. Nicholson replies, you can't handle the truth. Then I think about a saying of Jesus when he said, you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Now you have to decide this morning if you're going to believe Jesus or if you're going to believe Jack. But here is the truth about the truth. The truth will set you free, but it may make you miserable first because it reveals to us our true condition. And we really need to ask the question, what is truth? Pilate asked that exact question to Jesus. And today our postmodern age is questioning if there is even such a thing as truth. They say that truth only lies in our experience. And if my experience is different than your experience, then my truth is different than your truth. And what does it matter as long as we love each other and get along? But that kind of love is a mile wide and an inch deep, and it will never stand the test of time. Josh McDowell asked a question to Amber, a 16-year-old girl in their Christian youth group. The question he asked was, is it wrong to engage in premarital sex? Amber replied, well, I believe that it's wrong for me. Josh pressed her, but do you believe that the Bible teaches that premarital sex is wrong for everyone? 
Amber's eyes shift back and forth as she weighs the answer. She answers, well, I know it's wrong for me, and I've decided not to have sex until I am married, but I don't think I can judge other people for what they do. McDowell's conclusion is that Amber has been conditioned to believe that truth is not true for them unless they choose to believe it. That's why that over 80% of kids today claim that all truth is relative to the individual and his or her circumstances. This is the end result of evolutionary thinking. You see, if there is no God, and we are all just dancing to our DNA, then we get to decide what is moral and immoral, depending upon our feelings, because there is no absolute truth. The only standard for right and wrong is what we each decide is right and wrong. The big problem with that is some people have no problem going into their classroom and spraying their classmates with automatic weapons. Now please know that I think that real science is fantastic. But even true science can't answer the questions of truth and morality. And of course, it was never intended to. In his book, God's Undertaker, John Lennox explains the scope and limits of science with the following story. He writes, Let us imagine that Aunt Matilda has made a beautiful cake, and we take it along to be analyzed by a group of the world's top scientists. The nutrition scientist will tell us about the number of calories in the cake and its nutritional effect. The biochemist will inform us about the structure of proteins and fats in the cake. The physicist will be able to analyze the cake in terms of fundamental particles. And the mathematicians will no doubt offer, offer us a set of elegant equations to describe the behavior of those particles. We have certainly been given a description of how the cake was made and how its various ingredients relate to one another. But suppose I now ask the assembled group of experts a final question. Why was the cake made? The smile on Aunt Matilda's face shows she knows the answer because she made it for a purpose. But all the scientists in the world will not be able to answer the question, and it's no insult to their disciplines to state their incapacity to answer it. Their disciplines cannot answer the why questions connected with the purpose for which the cake was made. In fact, the only way we shall ever get an answer is if Aunt Matilda reveals it to us. But if she does not disclose the answer to us, the plain fact is no amount of scientific analysis will enlighten us. Now here's what I want us to see this morning. The same thing applies to morals and truth. The good thing is we have been enlightened. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul tells us where illumination can be found. The apostle writes, For this reason I too... Having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you will know what the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. How are we enlightened to know the truth? 
The Spirit of God reveals truth to us through the knowledge of Him. And how do we get the knowledge of Christ? In John 5.39, Jesus will tell a group of Jews this, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. Jesus was sent to us to reveal to us the Father, and he did this by speaking the truth at all times and on all occasions. In Ephesians 4.15, Paul tells us how we should speak the truth. Unfortunately, this is not how we normally do it. We see destructive patterns in somebody, and we don't say anything because we don't want to upset people. Then that person will finally do something that really makes us angry, and all of a sudden we'll unload our entire stockpile of emotional ammunition against them. We could call this the ministry of unloading. But Paul did not tell us speaking this truth in self-righteous indignation. Also, some people are a little too eager to speak the truth. They do truth speaking recreationally, but there's no love behind it. As I've told you before, there are some people that if they were to tell me they were going to tell me something in love, I would brace myself because I know I'm about to get blasted. Look, I know I said some hard things last week, but I said them in love because I'm concerned about some of you. And I know that I'm not the best preacher in the world, but I do strive to be truthful with you. And all the things I exhort or warn you about, I apply those same exhortations and warnings to my own life. We're all in the same boat there. So let me end this week's message with a thought experiment. Imagine picking up your car from the shop after a routine tune-up and the technician says, This car is in great shape. I can't recommend you do anything. But later that day, you're going down a hill and your brakes don't work. You find out you were completely out of brake fluid and you could have died. You go back to the shop and you say, why didn't you tell me? The technician says, well, I didn't want to make you feel bad. Plus, to be honest, I was afraid you might get upset with me. I want this to be a safe place where you feel loved and accepted. You'd be furious. You'd say, I didn't come here for a little fantasy-based ego boost. When it comes to my car, I want the truth. Or imagine going to the doctors for a checkup. The doctor says to you, you are a magnificent physical specimen. You have the body of an Olympian. You are to be congratulated. Later that day, while walking up the stairs, you have a massive heart attack. You find out later your arteries were so clogged, you were one jelly donut away from the Grim Reaper. You go back to the doctor and say, why didn't you tell me? The doctor says, well, I knew your body was in worse shape than the Pillsbury Doughboy, but if I tell people stuff like that, they tend to get offended. I want this to be a safe place where you feel loved and accepted. You'd be enraged. You'd say to the doctor, when it comes to my health, I want the truth. Obviously, when something matters to us, we do not want illusory comfort just based on pain avoidance. One last scenario. Imagine going to a church where you hear, Don't worry if you mismanage your anger. Nobody here will confront you about that because we don't like conflict. Or don't worry if you get drunk once in a while. Everybody knows how much pressure you're under. We might talk occasionally about sin, but it's always about sin that's 
out there. But nobody will talk to you about your sin because then we wouldn't feel good. And the goal is to walk out of church feeling good. I hope we see the correlation of all those three stories. Now, of course, transformation involves grace. We love grace. We love to hear about grace. We love to get books and messages about grace. The danger is we can misunderstand grace and start to worship feeling good instead of actually worshiping Christ. About whom we're told by John, we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, full of both grace and truth. We also need the truth. I need people who will speak truth to me because I can have a sin problem and be completely blinded to it. You don't believe me? Look at these statements from the Bible. John writes this, If we claim that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. The prophet Obadiah said, The pride of your heart has deceived you. The prophet Jeremiah also said, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can know it? I want grace, and I need grace, but I do not want grace at the expense of truth. Why? I cannot live a lie. I also want truth, but I don't want just truth because of my condition. So I need grace coupled with truth, and Jesus comes and brings those things, grace and truth. A great picture of that is a woman that is caught in adultery. It's almost always taken out of context when people who are living in sin quote this verse to you. He says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Then they say to you, see, you shouldn't be challenging my behavior because you're not perfect either. But they don't know the rest of the story. After Jesus tells the crowd that he was without sin cast the first stone, why does he tell the woman? You are forgiven, but now go and sin no more. What was Jesus saying? You are forgiven. That's grace. Now go and sin no more. That's truth. As predicted in the Psalms, mercy and truth kissed each other in Christ. Grace and truth met on the cross of Jesus Christ. The law was given on a quaking mountain. Grace and truth were born in a quiet manger. The law was written on tablets of stone. Grace and truth are written upon our hearts. And Father, I do need both those things. I need grace because I know how fickle I can be. But I also need truth, Lord, that you can show me the ways that I need to change. You know every heart within the sound of my voice. You know where they are at with you. And I pray, Father, that you would just let this sermon resound in their heart throughout the week. And let us all do the things that we need to do to be pleasing in your sight. We ask in your name. Amen.